What am I? What is the relationship between my mind and my body? The mind-body problem is an age-older problem. One of the questions you ask yourself, are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and which thing that happen in addition to all the physical process in your brain? Or are they as themselves just some of those physical processes? And what about gut feeling, instant? How we can anticipate uncertainty and predict situations before it happens? Do we understand why that happened to us? So when it comes to design robots or soft robots, one of the questions we can ask, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? Should it be designed in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have in our nature? What kind of design we should aspire for? Optimal or adaptable? One of the questions we can ask, how do these robots can function at open-ended environment and anticipate the uncertainty? What if there's damage happening to the brain or the body? How they can adapt to each other in this scenario like that? What we are still lacking in designing robots to achieve the embodied intelligence? In this series, we are going to interview researchers from interdisciplinary field to answer these questions and trying to understand what are the missing pieces so that we can achieve embodied intelligence. And what kind of tools or series we need to develop for solving the dilemma of mind-body problem. First of all, we would like to say thank you for Professor Fumia Lida for initiating the International Workshop in Embodied Intelligence, as well as this podcast series idea as a part of the workshop. It was the first time in our field to have such a great event to stitch all the leading researchers and ask the basic questions and what could be the direction for achieving the embodied intelligence. I hope you enjoy listening to this series, and here's the interview. Thank you. Hello and welcome to IEEE Super Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor Cecilia. Thanks so much for joining us for the second time uh, for this Embodied Intelligence series. Such an honor to have you. Thank you for joining. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So maybe a first question we would like to ask you in this series. How you would like to uh, define the embodied intelligence from your work or yeah, as a general definition for BBB, first time, just want to know what is actually embodied intelligence? Well, usually this word is meant to, I mean, to mean the part of intelligence that is done by the physical body. And this concept is a bit unusual because we tend uh, to think that intelligence is in the brain only, in the nervous system only. Uh, but actually a lot of it is in the physical body. I must say, I mean, we say intelligence, but we mean um, a larger concept like behaviors and motor behavior. So again, a part of our sensory motor behavior is done by the physical body and its interaction with the environment. Mm -hmm. Great. That... So maybe I think people would be curious to ask this question. When we have to design the robot now, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? And uh, yeah, that's maybe the first part of the question because we, sometimes we see in nature, sometimes animals or maybe creatures, they don't have a brain. 
and exhibit intelligence through the body, for example. And sometimes we see there are serious, the, the brain size to the body, how this ratio is designed. So when it comes to robots, how, how do you see it? How do you see that? I think uh, nature is telling us that there is this strict relation and this uh, uh, at least two components of intelligence, so the body and the brain. So definitely, uh, if we would be able to make them develop together at the same time, and uh, I mean, to have a co-development of brain and body, that would be great for robots. Uh, usually when we build our robots, uh, uh, in a sense, we build them as adults always. <laughs> and we assume that, that uh, they will uh, work uh, in the way we design them, uh, but we don't consider that we could make uh, them able to learn a bit and to develop and also in their in their body and to evolve in their uh, body to adapt to the tasks that we they, they have to do uh, together with the learning because uh, we know there is a lot of learning in robotics today but it's basically learning in the in the brain of the robot uh, but the body is basically the same so again we uh, let's say we born them as adults <laughs> with brains that can learn a bit, but still, I mean, it's completely different from the co-development uh, mm -hmm. that we see in, in nature. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting part. I'm curious to ask you in that case, because there's something we speak about how we can design robots more resilient. And if there's damage, supposing a scenario damage happening in the brain, how the brain can be adapted to the body we have with morphology and vice versa, if the damage happening in the body, how they can have the brain. And that leads to question how we can design them in either in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have it in nature. So how we can deal with the scenario hypothetically if we have something like that? Hmm. That's a beautiful question because we know that uh, some of the new directions of research for soft robotics uh, are towards uh, robots, robots that can grow or physically, I mean, or that um, can self-heal if they are damaged and that's a beautiful uh, perspective for future robots uh, and of course the intelligence of uh, those robots has to to develop in the, in the same direction so uh, i mean the possibility the capability for a robot to adapt uh, uh, to a changing body is, is essential. So um, a changing body can be just a soft body that somehow adapts uh, to tasks or evolves in, in time, but can be a body that is damaged and a body that uh, recovers after damage. So it's another change in, in the body structure or just, I mean, gets old as it happens in nature. Uh, so uh, that's definitely a very interesting topic in my, in my opinion. And in the same way as we make robots learn, uh, I think we should be able to make them uh, adapt to their their own body. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So maybe I think we would first ask you Sorry. if we apply that to what we have already in soft robotics or robotics, how do you see what is actually missing? What could be something we still we don't consider when it comes to this concept you're trying to see? What's something still maybe we have to focus on missing? Um, 
Actually, uh, what I still see is a bit of a separation between uh, these different kinds of intelligence. So on, on, on one side, we still see the intelligence in the brain and we have a learning uh, techniques for robots and um, uh, methods to, to evolve uh, and develop cognitive abilities in robots. And on the other side, we have embodied intelligence and a lot of efforts in building, uh, especially soft robots uh, that can show embodied intelligence. So, but there is quite a, a separation between uh, these two uh, research uh, efforts and uh, between the two, uh, also the two scientific communities of, uh, let's say, cognitive robotics, learning in robotics, and soft robotics, embodied intelligence. So uh, for me, bridge, uh, bridging uh, this, uh, this gap would be very interesting. I mean, building robots with embodied intelligence and cognitive abilities to use their embodied intelligence when it can be used and uh, I mean, uh, decide when uh, uh, relying on the body more or I mean, uh, using more, uh, let's say, cognitive uh, abilities to, to decide their own behavior. Mm -hmm. That's, a, for me, a very important effort that uh, we should do in research. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm curious to you for your work, maybe it could be a challenging aspect when you try to apply intelligence, because we ask sometimes whether we have to design the material, smart material, incorporate the sensing actuation, and all this computational. Uh, I don't know from your experiences in the field, what's something maybe challenging for your work first, if you can share with us to achieve embodied intelligence. Uh, actually, I'm really trying to, um, let's say, uh, as I said, put together the more cognitive parts of intelligence of the robot with the embodied intelligence one. So, um, Embodied intelligence is a great uh, idea, a great concept, and a great uh, method to use in robotics to um, obtain a better behavior and better means uh, more efficient and even um, easier to control if you want. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it, it is, uh, difficult to um, actually implement it in a robot in a very systematic way. We don't, we don't know how to teach our students to design robots with embodied intelligence, with morphological computation. But on the other side, we have beautiful techniques for making our robots more uh, intelligent uh, using AI techniques, using uh, machine learning, using neural networks. So. Uh, in my own uh, experience, uh, uh, since I, um, I mean, I have a personal history that uh, touches both uh, research areas. Uh, we're, we're trying to merge the two. So for example, we are trying to use uh, um, learning, um, robot learning 
with uh, soft robots and to control soft robots, uh, which doesn't mean that we don't use their embodied intelligence. What I think is that if we apply learning to soft robots that have in their body embodied intelligence, I think that the learning, the learning techniques, especially if you use the neural networks and this kind of computing tools, they can somehow encode the embodied intelligence that is in the robot itself. Uh, especially if the learning is done with the physical robot. So if a neural network uh, learns how to control the movement of, let's say, a soft robot arm, and the learning phase is done with the physical robot, with the prototype, not with a simulation or a model, but with the real prototype in the physical world and in the environment where we want to use the robot, then I think that the embodied intelligence is somehow uh, encoded by the neural network. It will be part of what it has learned. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, Bon. I would like to stop again in something said interesting about easier to control and the second step about the computation and how this goes hand in hand. The first part, easier to control. Because I think, I don't know, do you think that the way we use a traditional control, I, I think you were in, the, in this discussion before, but do you think that's something we have, for example, when we see the dead fish swimming upstream and they have how the dead fish can has this all for free and it's, it's dead fish. Do you think in software robotics we have to go for the direction as we are a human, it's, we don't understand. We have a lot of uh, guesses in the, uh, from neuroscience and they say, we don't understand what actually happened. How is this communication and sometimes passive dynamic happen for hand by, and sometimes if you have a motion like that, easy to do and hard movement in our bodies. So for you, easier to control, what does it mean? Does it mean that we have to uh, use the intrinsic properties of the design and the material? What do you mean easier to control here? Well, uh, for me, it's uh, um, having a smaller number of control parameters. Mm -hmm. So few control signals to control a behavior which is complex, complex in terms of uh, actuators used, in terms of degrees of freedom, if we want to uh, controlled <laughs> degrees of freedom. Because what I, I mean is that we should aim at complex robots because we want very good robots with many degrees of freedom, with a high dexterity uh, that can do, uh, I mean, interesting and helpful tasks. So we don't want to have very simple robots that can do just one movement. <laughs> we want them to be complex and uh, with uh, many sensors and, and, and everything. But then uh, we need to simplify the way they work which is not simplifying the robots, simplifying the systems. It's simplifying the way they work, which is exactly what we learn from nature. So um, simpler to control means for me having few parameters to set and then the behavior comes and comes very quickly. It's fast, which is also something that we learn from nature. That's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> the the compromise. I mean, the, the 
the drawbacks, uh, or I mean, the, the trade-off that we have to find with uh, uh, more uh, accurate control or more, uh, I mean, the control, more detailed movements is in the, in, in the ecological niche. I mean, embodied intelligence is a great concept, but we shouldn't forget that uh, it always consider, um, I mean, the body, the task of the body, the environment in, in an ecological niche. So it works in an ecological niche. Mm -hmm. This is something that we have uh, to learn in robotics and we have to exploit at, at its best. But still, we are considering an ecological niche. So, of course, if we want the robots that work anywhere <laughs> in uh, different environments, in many different tasks, uh, we, we should probably consider many ecological uh, niches. So, mm -hmm. in the design, we should take all them into account. So, in each of them, control will be simpler and effective and efficient uh, computationally, energetically. But of course, if we want to use it in many tasks, we will have others. And um, this is the kind of, of a trade-off that we have to find. So uh, ideally, many tasks, many ecological niches, where in each of them, the robot is good, efficient and so on, but then a sort of uh, a high level kind of control or intelligence, uh, if you want, uh, that can um, at least uh, switch between one ecological niche to the other and take decisions. This is what I mean by intelligence in a robot, cognitive capabilities in a robot, taking decisions and understanding which behavior to activate. Mm -hmm. That's a very excellent point. And that was a question I would like to ask you about um, what to close this trade-off, to close this gap. Because yeah, we when we go through the different um, niches for uh, geographically said, so we don't know. What do you think may be missing here? Because for example, we ask if this something like gut feeling, if we train the robot to be in a certain scenario, but Sometimes as we are human, that's something we ask also in other guests about the gut feeling, but something we don't understand how it happened. We have the right scenario, mm -hmm. the right everything, but our gut feeling, they, there's something off here. There's something not right. And then we mm -hmm. act on in this gut feeling. And there's something, do you think of robotics, how we can have the robot and environment, that there's something just, you know, expectations that something mm -hmm. is not going to work right. How we can close this trade off so that the robot can have this, feature to adapt to what you say, different like, ecological niche, for example, or different mm -hmm. environments? Well, um, that's a good point because uh, uh, what I, I sometimes say is during, say my, during my presentation is, okay, I always talk about simplifying control, simplifying this, but uh, it's not really uh, simplifying our lives as roboticists, <laughs> because in embodied intelligence, we, okay, we, maybe we simplify control, but as I said, we are not simplifying the system. And uh, for sure, we are not simplifying the design phase <laughs> of our robot. So design is way more complex because we have uh, more uh, things <laughs> to consider. We have more uh, parameters to set at the design uh, phase of our robots. So our life 
uh, is definitely more complex and more difficult. And uh, and yes, sometimes it's difficult for the roboticist, for the robot designer to really understand the mechanism that we want to put into our robots. Um, in my personal experience, uh, um, we tried to uh, address this uh, by using some computational tools that can help. For example, the, um, the evolutionary algorithms. And, uh, and, and that was very interesting because uh, with uh, one of our robots, uh, uh, one of our uh, soft robots, uh, um, basically um, uh, with, with several limbs uh, and able to walk underwater, so also a, a, a particular uh, environment, uh, we applied those, uh, those um, algorithms and actually we found a very interesting um, morphologies. I mean, a few morphological parameters were changed. And we also found very interesting um, locomotion patterns that uh, didn't come to our minds our human minds. So we, we hadn't uh, thought of those possible ways of walking underwater with that morphology. And the, this evolutionary algorithms could uh, generate them. Uh, in another example, in another work, we um, saw how to activate the many degrees of freedom of a soft arm still in water in order to reduce the uh, activations and so overall being more efficient, for example. And that's also something that it is difficult to, uh, to manage just like with the, the brain of the engineer <laughs> designing the robot. So ours are just examples, are just little experiences, but uh, I mean, just to give a, a flavor of how that can be addressed. Mm, that's a good point. Maybe someone will ask you in that case, because yeah, we have to design them in optimal way or adaptable way, because you mentioned sometimes <laughs> the design would end up our mind. And uh, I, I think we were in, in the discussion about bio-inspired and bio, uh, for example, biomechanical, that for coming up with exotic design, something we didn't come to our mind. The goal for you is to have something optimal or adaptable. How we figure out that through, yeah, yeah. coming up with this design, if evolutionary way you didn't expect it. So how, how we come up with this goal? Yeah. I personally feel more com comfortable with adaptable <laughs> than with optimal design. <laughs> That's my personal uh, feeling. Uh, but um, this is also something that we learn from nature. Nature is not optimal design. When we, was, when we take a biological model for our bio-inspired robots, they are not optimally designed because they are not designed. They are just the, uh, the, the result of evolution. So they are the results of um, incremental modifications, incremental adaptations. So uh, definitely not optimal design, but good enough to work in the in their environment um, and ready to adapt again mm. and that's very important <laughs> yeah yeah so maybe if, if we can ask you about what's something you think of we have to um 
for example, to think about it again for your research, and you think um, it was counterintuitive to what you saw through your research. So why, while you try to deploy, uh, deploy embodied intelligence and simplify the control, something you found that is counterintuitive to what you thought about through your career. Is there something scenario like that happened to you that was surprising, that wasn't expected? That's counterintuitive to what I thought supposed to happen. And you have to think about again, or maybe it's still hard to understand why mm. it's happening like that. That's, um, I mean, uh, nice question, difficult to answer because, uh, you know, there are many cases in, in, in the life of a scientist where you are surprised by what you find and you have to change uh, uh, your direction because that was wrong. Um, I must say that when you do some bio-inspired robotics, you often find counter uh, intuitive examples in nature. I mean, nature uh, is, uh, and, and bio-inspiration is especially for changing your view on, <laughs> on, on engineering, on, on robotics, on, on the way of, uh, of, of designing robots. Um, actually, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, as I said, many examples. Um, something that I learned many years ago from neuroscience is that uh, actually brains don't work in the in what we consider the usual way in robotics which is uh, uh, perception then processing of the of the sensory information and let's say the cognitive part and then from there come up with a, a motor behavior and send commands to the motors to the actuators to to have the robot moving and it's always this circular uh, loop that we consider so perception uh, let's say reasoning planning and then action and it's always uh, perception before action in robotics and i learned from neuroscience that this is not the case in brains but brains uh, anticipate i mean predict the sensory input a lot so it's a, a completely different loop that is put in place in brains uh, which is of course more efficient in terms of uh, speed of execution for example or execution of the movement so movements are much faster and the motor behavior is as fast as can go on without waiting for the sensory input but generating uh, uh, its sensory input and just comparing it with the incoming one, which is much faster and uh, uh, so so much more efficient. So this is just an example of a completely different viewpoint that you find in, in nature with respect to, um, to robotics. This is something that I implemented, but uh, unexpectedly, I must say, it uh, didn't become popular in robotics. <laughs> so sometimes uh, many of this, um, let's say, elegant solutions of, uh, of, of nature uh, don't really go on in robotics. Uh, sometimes in robotics, we prefer to just use uh, 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 brute force. So if this uh, these elegant solutions can um, make computation more efficient, 
we don't care too much because we have powerful computers and with this uh, brute force approach, we can reach the same purpose so they don't become popular. But I think the, the, they're still interesting uh, in the way they reverse our point of view. Mm -hmm. That's a good point as well, yeah. So since we're close to the end and have a few questions, maybe the first part, what could be technological roadblocks? You mentioned the computation power and other research sometimes say that what we have in learning approaches or machine learning, we still we don't capture what happened in the brain or the structure of the brain to, to achieve it or cognition, for example. For you, what maybe in soft robotics maybe specifically, what could be a technological roadblocks to, yeah, to which is direction? Uh, well, uh, this is uh, also an important uh, question. Um, actually, um, of course, there are many, many technologies still uh, to, to develop and everybody always answer <laughs> probably this kind of answer. But um, what I think uh, um, is an important uh, um, objective for uh, research in embodied intelligence and morphological computation is the, the theoretical part of it. Um, it's an important uh, objective already addressed by some scientists and that's an important work, but uh, I think that we definitely need uh, um, a theoretical description of it. And we need the tools for uh, modeling mathematically all the mechanisms that are behind embodied intelligence. And last but not least, we related to this, we need uh, simulation tools. Simulation tools for our robots and simulators where we can uh, make them uh, um, adapt, grow, evolve, adapt, uh, and, uh, and uh, and, and I mean, show us their embodied intelligence. That's a good point. And for maybe quick questions for the modeling and simulation, because that's something you discuss all the time. For the modeling in that case, for, for this scenario, which scale you have to go for in that case? Because sometimes you see modeling is hard and it's not reproducible and it just gives insights. But in case of designing the body and the brain, what could be significant parameters that can capture both of them or maybe couple both of them? In that case, do you think we have uh, some insight in that direction? What kind of significant parameter couples the brain and the body in efficient way, like the mechanical mm -hmm. and electric part? Well, uh, of course, the what is always difficult to model is the kind of deformations that soft robots can have that are instrumental to implement embodied intelligence. But that's a part of the story. The full story is the formations of the bodies and interaction with the environment. And that's probably even more difficult, but this is what we definitely need to, I mean, to be able to work on soft robots and to be able to study the embodied intelligence that they can embed and the way we can put embodied intelligence in them. Mm -hmm. That's a good perspective, yeah. And for simulation, what could be uh, your aspiration to have high fidelity simulation? Since mm -hmm. still we can have nonlinear materials, it's hard, not all the tools incorporate this, these features of the system. For you, what kind of high fidelity simulation you aspire to have? 
the closest gap we have already and to yeah the, the dream is to have simulators where you can set the materials of your robot and the actuators <laughs> and then have, i mean you could simulate uh, the, the the control system and see the effect of the environment so there are many aspects in, in, in this, the, in what I described, and they are all quite difficult. So I said it's the dream, the final uh, dream that we have. But that, that would uh, help a lot in, uh, in soft robotics, I think, uh, in exploring more the, the, the possible control approaches, in exploring more uh, the uh, possible learning that we can put in, in soft robotics and finally probably I mean help us bridge the gap that I mentioned between a more cognitive kind of intelligence in the brain of the robot and the embodied intelligence in its body. Mm -hmm. Great and uh, we have two last questions. First one, is there any crazy ideas when you certain think like five years coming or ten years? I, I imagine something like that in, in my lab. I, I wanted to have this kind of soft robot that or have this exotic feature. I don't know, sometimes you have these crazy ideas. Do you have any crazy ideas in your mind when you're thinking something still, yeah, we don't have? <laughs> Difficult questions to select one of them. Uh, the very general idea that uh, I already talked about is to have um, sort of um, life cycles for our robots. So I would really like to, I mean, to build a robot that is somehow at its birth, birth and then it can grow and learn and, uh, and adapt to the tasks that we want uh, it to, to accomplish. And then also the other part. So not only growing and becoming adult, but also, let's say, decaying and degrading at some point. So that's a sort of, uh, of, of, of dream, full dream, but it can be probably addressed in, in parts <laughs> in, the, in different steps of this uh, life cycles that, yeah. that is possible, not so impossible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, maybe lastly, what would be the best advice? Uh, because we asked you in the first episode, what's the best advice? Uh, but if you have any best advices you can give to maybe researchers or students interested in the field. And if you also would like to add advices we've given to you uh, <laughs> in your life, that was maybe a life changing to your way of thinking and think about life, because it's something when it comes to we have to think about life and are we our human, so. <laughs> Well, about embodied intelligence, my, my recommendation is, uh, uh, I mean, the usual recommendation. Um, embodied intelligence is not only about the robot. It is about the robot, the environment, and the tasks. So, I mean, young roboticists should always uh, have this in mind and uh, approach the design of a new robot by considering everything at the same time, which I said it's more complex, it's not easier, but it's the, the right way to go. Um, and so that, that's, uh, let's say, my, my first uh, advice. So consider that there will be gravity if it is on Earth. <laughs> there will be, I mean, the influence of our external factor, but they are not problems to cancel. They are help. They can be a help 
for the robot. So this is a, a change in, in the viewpoint that can be can be very, very important. Um, and uh, I mean, um, as I said, uh, combine all this with the uh, the other, I mean, uh, robotics techniques for for control and uh, try to put everything together and uh, uh, try to just add embodied intelligence as a further piece in a robot that can improve its behavior. That's the, the, mm. the end of the story, if you want. <laughs> that's really wise point. I, th I think that's something, yeah, thanks so much for summarizing all these pieces together. So I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for the people listening to this series, any final words you'd like to say? Um, I would like to, I mean, to uh, suggest that especially the young robotics is to keep, uh, I mean, their minds open, <laughs> open to get uh, lessons or suggestions from, from nature, from biology, from uh, human brains, from brains of other animals, and be ready to be inspired. By, by many other disciplines, by nature, by, I mean, other, um, they, they are friends in our disciplines. So they should be ready to integrate knowledge uh, in any form. So there are no boundaries and there shouldn't be barriers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so thanks so much, Cecile. I think that was very inspiring and yeah, so oh. clear and crystal clear to people to consider what's actually the next steps or missing pieces. So I deeply appreciate your time and such honor to have you in this year. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to so, you.